Welcome to episode 21 of the Fantastic Texting, the show where we talk about our own tech startups on a weekly basis. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about other stuff too, right, uh, on occasion. I guess so, we do. Uh, yeah, let's. Uh, well, so since we're talking about our startups, let's hear, um, let's hear the, uh, the weekly update for TweetMiner. Just opening up the stats page. Okay, so interestingly enough, um, what I did was on the sales page, well, on on the on the plan sign up page, right? I put I put like a, a bit of a sales pitch, just sort of saying hi. This is Justin Vincent from Treatminer here. Just want you to know that you can cancel at any time, right? And that seems to have bumped up the um, the the conversion ratio quite a lot. Um, we're now at two point one percent conversion really? ratio. Yeah, with twenty eight customers. Twenty eight paying customers. Yeah. Because you went from six in the week one, and then you had a total of nine after week two, mm-hmm. and now you're at 28? Yeah. That's substantial. Yeah, it's pretty, it is pretty significant, isn't it? There seems to be one what? sale a day, one or two sales a day now. Yeah, well, that's good. Now, what percentage of those are coming from the affiliate uh, thing you got versus straight? It seems to yeah. be about 50% from the affiliate. Okay. But the, affiliates, well, the, the affiliate sign-up is, is really taking over the whole user base. That's now thirty-two percent of the user base. Right, right. So, free, in other words, any free any free user coming in isn't is from the affiliates. Now, how many different levels? You have like a a, a regular and a pro, or do you have multiple levels? Uh, well, like I removed the five dollar level, so now there's just two levels. There's a there's a ten buck level and a twenty buck level. Okay, so twenty is regular, ten is regular, twenty means you're you're a power user. Well, essentially, I did have three levels. I had the $5, the $10, and the $20. Um, but I'm going to be sort of switching it around and making the the current $10. Like, the, the, the plan name for the $5 was the Plus. So I have Plus, Premium, and Max. I'll be moving... <laughs> the Plus. So there was... It's kind of like, when you get a pizza, there's no small pizza, Domino's, medium, mm-hmm. right? It's a medium. Or if you go to... Uh, isn't the same thing when you get a Starbucks or something? They don't have yeah. actually a small... It's a tall, the smallest... Yeah. He's all right. A plus. So I'm going to move the ten buck to the plus, and then the twenty buck to the the premier, and then have another higher one for the max. Right. Ultimately. Right. Well, but, now, what did you say for people who had already bought in for the cheaper plan? Do they get grandfathered in for any amount of time? Yeah, they're gonna. They they'll just keep whatever the plan they signed up. You know, they'll just keep getting that as long as they they keep paying. Oh, that's nice. Well, that's yeah. I mean, they they were in, they're the bleeding edge customers, so they yeah. deserve some, you know, payback for that. Well, that's awesome. Well, that's yeah. Well, that's encouraging, right? No, it is. It is really encouraging. Um, the big take home from this week for me is the amount of support requests has just gone through the roof, and uh, I feel very overwhelmed. Like before, I had two clients who paid me, you know, my main amount of money every month. Now I've got thousands of clients. <laughs> who That's all right. Want to, and and the funny thing is, is like you know because I've taken the Peldy approach of um, you know putting all the information out there so you can get my phone number, etc. So I've had a couple of calls as well, you know, with people sort of calling me up and saying, I just signed up for the ten dollar account and I don't understand this, I don't understand that, and you know I've spent you know a few hours on the phone to just sort of random people. Well, I guess that's helping you understand how the people are using your product, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's helpful in that, and it's, but yeah, you're right. It, it takes a lot of time. Customer support is no joke. No. Especially yeah. if you're going to be that accessible like Peldy. But, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, because Peldy had a lot of success 
And the question is, how much was it, was it attributable to him being open and transparent? And how much was it was more due to the fact that he just created a very good product? You know, like if he had it's not the been product. Yeah, successful? I think so. Because basically his product is so his product, which is balsamic mockups, uh, which is basically, you know, you can instantly very quickly do wireframes of any software project you're doing. That's so useful for so many people compared to TweetMiner that's only useful for people who want to schedule tweets on Twitter. <laughs> so it's a much more limited market. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, really, the only people doing mockups are people who are part of a, some type of software or web development process versus people who are who are attempting to communicate with the world in some kind of a, more of, a, of an industrial grade way. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I'm okay. not sure if I. I mean, you held it. There's clearly a, a a solid marketplace for you know mockups. But um, had I not known the story of Balsamic, I don't know if I would have seen that. I mean, obviously that's without research, but it just just thinking about it, it just doesn't sound that that's necessarily true. Well, he made sixty thousand dollars sales in the first six weeks. So I just don't see how Tweetminder could. Are have you ever sure? Done that. Is that right? Yeah. In the first six weeks. Yeah. Hmm. Something like that. Much that sounds high. I think, I think it was for six months. Oh Did no! No no no! Six months. He was at he was at four hundred thousand or something. Really? Yeah. I'd have to. I'd like to double check that. I'm not sure it's that much. I mean, know it went well, but I thought there was a nice slow, like he launched in like June and then like, well, you know, I don't remember. I have to just look it up. Oh, but, ten um, thousand revenue in the first six weeks. Ten thousand. Yeah. Yes, that's a little more reasonable, right? I mean, yeah, but I'm. I mean, like, Tweetminer has no hope of being anything like that. Like, it, it didn't even get close. I mean, what do you have so far in the first three weeks? Well, uh, I think it's around six hundred dollars or something. Okay. Well, I mean, maybe at the end of that's three weeks. Maybe after six weeks, you have like you know, fifteen hundred, two thousand. <laughs> That'd be good. <laughs> That's good. Well, you know what I was thinking about the other day is, you know, we were talking about in a previous podcast about how um, measuring the revenue generated from treat, by TweetMiner um, right. compared to your income as a consultant. Yeah. Right. And you're like, well, how many months or years is going to take to replace, you know, entirely or at least a significant portion of it? And I was thinking, you know what, actually, it might even be a better way of thinking about it is comparing it to how many hours you put into it. Right. Right. So if there's some way of having like some, even with sort of a, a, of a rough estimate of like, well, I, you know, you put in, you know, X hundred hours into it mm. multiplied by your consulting rate, you know, and as soon as you cross that threshold, you're good. And yeah. then it'll go up because then there'll be times you're just, you know, even if you're say, well, you're spending, you know, X hours a, a week, you know, doing uh, maintenance and improvement improvements and stuff, it may still be significantly less than if you were billing all those hours. Your aggregate number of billed hours, um, or to, uh, the aggregate number of hours that you put into coding or supporting or marketing TweetMiner versus if it rather it compared against you had just been writing code for as a consultant. I think that's a good, that's a good plan. That's a good way to look at it. Because then um, you can, that's when you can start feeling good about it. Because then you know, then you know you've created leverage. Well, a lot of people start these things just it's something on the side, you know. I mean, that's sort of been my thought is it's just something I'm doing on the side. I mean, it's just the dream is that it could overtake the other, you know, the other revenue income. I, I'm 
not necessarily expecting that, you know, certainly not for a while. Well, you know, it's like that. I'd read an article. I think it was the guy. Well, I, you know, I can't remember which article this was. I'd read it a, a month or so ago, and he was talking about, you know, first he was just like, "Wow, as soon as this, as soon as the revenue from this can buy me a, a flat screen plasma." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? I think then I know he the could one buy a new laptop, or then he could, you know, like that was like a good way of thinking about it, you know, because it was like a side fund project, and now all of a sudden, in addition to just sort of having fun building this thing. He's gotten these other things that he wouldn't have been able to afford based on his own income. Yeah. And then and then it, it kind of keeps your expectations in check. You're like, oh, I'm going to make a million dollars. It's like, well, mm-hmm. look, you know, I mean, if you're making an extra two grand a month, <laughs> you know, that's, you know, maybe your mortgage or, you know, your, you know, I mean, that's a lot to of, of money from compared to having have not had it, especially if you're just making, you know, you're a regular working guy making you know, 60, 80, 120 grand a year, something in that range, an extra two, three grand a month, big difference. Yeah. Right? I think that's great. And, it, and at first, you're at the point right now where you put in this big chunk of time and the revenue is still, well, a few hundred bucks, you're like, well, geez, you know, if I had consulted those hours, I would have made X thousands of dollars. Well, it's, that'll, that'll ultimately flip, in a, you know, whether it's, I don't know, whatever the calculation is, a couple months from now, a few months from now. Yeah. You'll be on the other side. So I think that's a way to keep getting it. That would be a big exciting point. Yeah. You know, anyway, anyway um, when we talked about this in a previous one too, pre-podcast was about how the, you know, building something organically like you're doing versus um, going and raising a bunch of money and stuff. And I was just reading an article um, by the guy, Steve Blank, and I brought him up and I brought him up, or at least an article. Uh, he, I, I brought up an article he wrote, uh, I think a week or two ago, and he wrote The Four Steps to the Epiphany, I think. Right. And he wrote an article called Raising Money Using Customer Development. And essentially what he's talking about is that when you go to raise money, say, how far away you are from answering their real question, which is you have a repeatable, scalable business model. And the only way you can really find that out is actually going out and getting paying customers. And everything short of that is, is just um, – it requires a lot of sort of a leap of faith on their part. Right. Right? Because essentially what – VCs are looking for is they like they want to they they want to find a function that turns you know X dollars into you know n times X you know and yeah. if they can just pour in money you know they can just multiply that by a scalar then that's what they want to do. That's interesting. But if they don't know what n is, if n is greater than one or if n is ten or five or fifty or whatever, you know they don't they'd rather not do that if they don't have to. They'd like to say okay, this is a repeatable business model and we believe this is a pretty good market. So yeah, let's put a money and just scale it. I mean, the nuts, so you're saying the nuts and bolts of, of making money, right, just down to its real basic, is just finding a strategy that makes money and then multiplying that strategy and yeah. then bringing extra money. <laughs> Perfecting it, finding more customers, keeping your churn down, keeping customers from leaving, figure out how you can extract more money if you have upsale to, you know, clients who would pay more if it had additional features, whatever. But, um, yeah, and what you're doing is exactly – what you know this steve blank was talking about his articles that is that you're going out and you're not only just you did not like you just said oh i have a business idea or i proof of concepted it or i taught did some focus group or i have some beta users you went out you built it you got beta users you got customers they're paying for it you're getting a repeatable model right and so as it starts to scale a little bit you have two options at that point you could say hey i'm just gonna let this thing roll 
you know, I'm just going to keep doing it and let it grow organically. Or you could actually go and raise money because, you know, if maybe six months down the road, you're like, wow, you know, it, as it turns out, this is my customer acquisition cost. And this is how much I revenue I get. And it's, it's, you know, it's a good multiple, multiple that, you know, that's not a hard sell for an investor to say, Hey, put in, put in a certain amount of money and we'll go and, and put in marketing and just scale this thing. That's why I like it so much better. I just because mm. the guys like you and I who can who who have business in general a basic business sense of how to how to set up and run a business, but also can write code. We're of that minority of people who can actually do that, right? We don't have to go out and and find coders and outsource stuff. It's like yeah. actually have the capacity to come up with an idea, build a small version, start charging people. <laughs> Well, it's also, I mean, the the other thing is, is because, you know, I originally started in sort of design. So that that's the other, the sort of the third part of it as well, sort of coming up with the business and doing the design. So that is, that's quite a good position to be in. Yeah. I mean, because you can get to that point where, you know, it's so difficult for so many other people because they just don't have the the skill sets, you know, they, they, they lack something core to it. And you don't have to be an expert in business to to do kind of like what you're doing business-wise, set up a PayPal account. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you. Have, it's not like you have to be an an expert in and all these different in accounting and finance. You just it's pretty basic information that you can find out, you know, very quickly and implement some APIs and get an accountant and whatever and, and you know register an LLC in about 20 minutes online and you, you do it. You said that you um, this last week. You said you were really. Head over heels in code. What just before we started the podcast? What did you mean by that? Oh, I just just that um, you know I've just I, I've just been uh, you know because I've all these different projects right, and I'm just been hauling ass on all of them, and I just look back and go, God, you know, the amount of the amount of that I've gotten done in any one of these would be almost like a full time job. It seems like yeah. If it looks at what I've done for the the trading company I work for with, I'm working with Rock Capital, the amount right. of infrastructure I built for the trading is just is really coming along and I only spend four hours a day on that. And yeah. then um do you feel like you're burning out? Not yet. Luckily, you know, one thing I do, you know, it's like I you know I've been coding long enough or working long enough that I've kind of come to a good sense about what burns me out, what doesn't. Right. You know, um I can't work late into the night. That burns me out. Like just an extra two or three hours you know, after dinner, going to 11 or 12 o'clock at night and then, you know, having to go right to bed, not having time to read or chill out, watch TV or something for a few minutes. That's interesting. That's interesting. Because I definitely do that. That burns me out. I mean, yeah, because everybody has their own things they need to do and that keep them from feeling fresh and excited about what they're doing. So I, I try and avoid doing that. But what I, what I do do is I get work done on the weekends because, you know, I'm, you know, it's during the day and, you know, I, yeah. I spend a certain amount of time, a certain amount of my time is allocated to, you know, with the kids and the family, but, you know, it's only so much time that I can play with them or a lot of time they're napping or, you know, doing other stuff. So I can, I can get a few work, few hours down in the morning, a few hours in the afternoon. And they're usually really productive. But anyway, I, I don't work a ton of hours in a day. I mean, I only work probably eight solid coding hours. Yeah. Tops. Um, but I try and stay pretty focused. I don't mess around and spend a lot of time, you know, on the, on the internet. I mean, if it, I, I check things like on Hacker News and find interesting articles, but I just get them in a queue and print them all out and read them in the evening. So I don't spend time reading crap on the internet, <laughs> you know, which is a huge time suck. Have oh, you read any interesting articles recently? 
Yeah, I have. But let me tell you one other thing. I just I was just thinking one thing about being productive. I come a couple couple things that I've just sort of been fine tuning with my own productivity, and one is that every hour or so, I really now try and be consciously take an extra five or ten minute break. You know, oh, don't right. don't don't go that extra half hour, forty five minutes where you're like hour and a half, two hours. You start really feeling like your back's starting to hurt, and you're kind of like getting kind of ugh, feel like I'm sinking into this chair. You yep. know, get up. You know, if it's just like refill coffee and go and I go, you know, I'll go and I'll talk with Sandy and, you know, I play with the kids for a few minutes or, you know, just kind of, you know, just five or 10 minutes of that. And then I'm, then I'm all right. Then I feel like getting back to it. But if I don't get out of my chair for like three hours or something, yeah, I really start to, I lose, my productivity starts to go down. So that's one thing. And the other thing I started doing, at least on the weekend. So the, you know, there's, there's, there's consulting work I need to get done. And then there's stuff like on my uh, side project that I really want to work on that I just am like, you know, lying awake at night thinking about. And so I'm super excited about working on it, but I can't work on that first because I have to get this client work done. Right. And so what I did, I started doing a little last week and I really started doing this week and weekend is I said, all right, I got to do these X things. So every time that I finish a to-do item for a client, like a big to-do item, I'll give myself an opportunity to do a small item on my side project. Hmm. Right? That's a good approach. So that's like, all right, just knock this out, spend a half hour, 45 minutes, knock this big chunk, uh, uh, you know, task out. And then I can go and I can spend 10, 15 minutes and, and just do this little thing. And it starts adding up. So it's like, because otherwise what happens is if I don't relieve that pressure of wanting to work on this other thing, I spend all my time either A, thinking about doing it and not really getting much done on my client project <laughs> right? or I completely ignore the client project and I start working on it and I, and I get really even further behind on the, you know, on the client stuff. Well, I had a, an interesting experience this week. Um, it, it, well, actually it was just the beginning of last week is that, uh, you know, I've got the two projects going on. I've got the, the tweet miner, which is the sort of the homegrown. And then I've got the large one where I'm trying to, trying to raise, you know, 500,000 to a million bucks. Right. So um, we had a we ha we had a couple of investor presentations, and you know Skype and they were online via online. Mm -hmm. Skype just kept on breaking out, you know, you know the way that Skype does. Yeah, sure. And <laughs> it's it's a really bad time to lose communication when you're when you're pitching to people for large amounts of money. So the team were got a little bit you know sort of irritated by this. So um, I've I've ended up buying um, Vonage. Have you heard of Vonage? Yeah, I don't know much about it. What's so what's the service? Uh, it's like you, it's well, it's 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 VoIP basically. So you just you just plug in this VoIP box directly into the into the net, and and um, as far as and and then you just have a phone line. So it's just like a normal phone line, but it plugs into your your internet, which is good because okay. you can take the number wherever you go. But because it's it's um, Vonage is just completely dedicated VoIP. You know, all of their infrastructure mm -hmm. is dedicated. You don't get any of these issues that you get with Skype, where you're relying on some random stranger's machine to do the peer-to-peer -peer correctly. I see. So that made a big difference. Yeah, well, it has made a big difference. Yeah, but um, it's just you know, I guess somehow I just thought that Skype was going to always carry me through, but it looks like it's just not going to do it. We've yeah, had Skype a lot of issues is a with Skype. Great service for what it, for you know what it costs, but yeah, I wouldn't you know put my uh, life or business future professional career on the line because of yeah. it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've definitely had our own problems with this podcast, you know?
with it on occasion. It was like two shows ago, like the whole the whole show, you sounded like uh, Dalek or something. Well, we oh, of course in the states you don't know what Dalek is, just like a like a robot kind of you know. Oh, because it kept cutting out. Yeah, it kept cutting out, and then it was kind of wobbly and strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, you know I um I just thought so I got an email. I, I'm still supporting Frieza, right? I get emails. Oh yeah. Maybe once every day or a couple of days I get an email about someone didn't get a validation email sent through or, or something. And uh, I, I, so I'm, I'm trying, uh, so I go into the database and I, I still just am writing queries to find out people. I don't have like an, I, I didn't even build like an admin. Oh, right. You know? Yeah. So I just go on the database. I'm a select, you know, star from blah, blah, you know, and I, I have this one little query that counts up how many users. And I was like, wow, I have, there's 26,000 people have signed up for free. So I'm like, that's actually a pretty good number. I still like 50, 40, 50 people sign up a day or something. Like Why that. don't you um, send those people an email about TweetMiner with an affiliate link? Well, what I'm thinking about doing is, um, I, you know, my next, I was just thinking about that for my next project, like um, that I would use that because I don't want to abuse it, right? Yeah, understood, yeah. I don't want to send them. So, um, and we could talk about that, but I'm definitely going to, I'm definitely going to say, okay, I'll, I'm going to send them one email <laughs> about my next project, you know? Well, that's, I mean, I've, I've done that because, um, you know, with the virtual Irish pub moving, uh, you know, it was going along collecting people. Um, and I suppose I had like 50,000 emails and, um, you know, it, I basically sent one email to them when I did a new version of the virtual Irish pub and there wasn't ones that, you know, one complaint at all. Yeah, did it did it help at all? Yeah, it it just got you know got new people onto that onto the new version basically. Right. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see if it you know the project I'm working on you know because there may not be a huge correlation between the number of people who would use Prezo versus this uh, this new stuff that I'm working on. I mean, I don't know. Um, I'm, what I'm the, the I'm guessing there's people at home thinking that that's probably really really bad and it's very it's spamming and you shouldn't do it. So let's see what kind of um, anger anger hate mail we get well i don't know i mean it's like i could say you know it's not like i've ever emailed these people on anything so if i say hey i you know i've created a new you know new project if you'd like to try it out you know that's <laughs> if that's spamming people i mean you know that's really a stretch um you know because i buy i buy um oh, it's like i still get emails from code or, or software that i've that i bought five eight years ago you know oh yeah me too i mean i get tons from you know when i was i don't know source forge or wherever yeah i mean it's this you know send send descent sending one email after like two years <laughs> especially when they've that. never paid you a bean they never paid me and say hey you know it's a hey by the way i've got this cool thing i've created you know if you're interested check it out one time but i don't know anyway so um but that won't be for couple months anyway i mean i'm shooting how is that project going it's come along really quickly lately i've just been just every spare minute that i can get i've been working on it because i just i'm so excited about it i think it has a lot of potential is there anything more you can tell us about it <sighs> i don't know I, i'd rather not talk too much about it i mean sure. um just because i think it'll be more fun to talk about once i ha once it's once it's ready and have people use it and stuff i but it's 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 I'm excited about it. I I keep <laughs> thinking about how powerful it is yeah. and what it's going to be able to do. And you know, there are things there are, there are things that are 
uh, that people buy that are tools and there are things that are solutions. And solutions are much more powerful because they're just, it's just done. You know, just this is the answer right there versus something that will help you do something. It's just one piece of a, of a much larger process. And this is much closer to a solution than a tool, which I like. Okay. I think it gives a lot more opportunity. And, um, and it's just there's, it's going to solve a problem, I think, that a lot of people have that they, they don't, where they don't have a solution for. There is no answer. So good. that'll be uh, cool. And, you know, one of the, the other good thing about it is that it's solving a problem that it'll help me even. And for solving something, it's something that I would like to exist. And because of that, and I think it's probably the same with you with TweetMiner, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's something that you wanted for yourself. Yeah. So that's easy for you to understand what it is that you want to build, that's important to build. And it's also like, even if a lot of people weren't necessarily paying for it or there was a, there was a, a, lo a long time before there was any significant update, it's like fine. It's like you're still building for yourself, right? Yeah. Still worth building as opposed to if you're building something that you thought a market would want but you have zero interest in, zero use for it. If there was, if there was any sort of lull in, in uptake, you'd just be like, ah, screw it. You know, I don't care about this thing. Yeah, just hard to keep going. That's why, that's why I think it's really important to work on stuff that you yourself really want to use. Well, you have that much I guess that's the lesson you learned from Prezo. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've given like one presentation of my life, and that was with demonstrating Prezo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've never given a presentation. I have no interest in presentations. It's not something you know that I do. So, um, it was more of a it was more of an application of a technology than it was say, hey, here's a problem I want to particularly solve. I mean, I could, I, I did, I noticed that there was a problem that people had this problem. It wasn't my problem. So, tell me, have you, have you read any good articles this week that you want to talk about? Let's see. Um, yeah, you know, um, one that was kind of interesting. Um, going more on the tech side is uh, it's, it's, the article was the MySQL, MySAM, and NoDB engines and a grocery checkout. Huh. And it's the guys from Scout app. I think Scout is like a um, some kind of an analytics, I think, software yeah. website. And they were talking about using my my Sam versus uh, NoDB, the engines for MySQL. Yeah. And the big difference is my Sam is um, table level locking for updates, whereas NoDB is row level. So. Um, and the question is the kind of usage patterns you're going to get, um, you know, really determine which is the better choice for you, I guess. Um, and I'm not an expert in that. I've just, I've read a couple articles recently, just think, I've been thinking a little bit about it. And I thought that was kind of interesting what they were talking about. So it's like if you had, so if you're doing a lot of updates, my same is not the best. If you're doing it, and it, if, it's, if it's read heavy and, and write l l um, light, it's my Sam, and if it's the reverse of that, where you're doing lots of updates but not necessarily a ton of reads, then NoDB is much better. And there's all these other kind of things like NoDB. NoDB has things like um, I think they support transactions and foreign keys, whether my Sam doesn't. Do so that. can I just can I that's that's MySQL, right? Yep. Can I just switch it over because there's there does it have to be the whole database or can it just be the t uh, individual tables? Tables tables can be uh, as far as I understand, tables can be just my Sam or NoDB. I've always, you know, I mean, it's kind of funny because all the projects I've worked on, I've just defaulted to my ISAM. I never really thought much about it. And, yeah. um, you know, and then I started thinking, I mean, I always thought, like, what does this other one advantages do? And then it's like, ah, you know, I'll just use my ISAM, and if I have a problem, I'll think more about it. But I started reading more about it. Because I've got this one table in TweetMiner, which is the tweets table. So every, uh -huh. every time someone 
does a refresh, it pulls down 20 or 40 tweets from Twitter and then inserts them. And so we've got, you know, like 100 people doing that at the same time, continually inserting 40 tweets. Yeah, uh, it sounds like that. You might want to do an experiment and try and try like, you know, what you could do is make a duplicate table and do an A-B test and see our performances maybe. I mean, one of the things that I did to drastically increase the performance on that already was rather than doing it as 40 queries it's sort of one long insert query you know the way that you can do a multiple insert query yep yep no i do that all the time too yeah absolutely yeah well that that that's usually a, a better approach um you know insert multiple records in one time than multiple insert queries as far as i understand unless there's something i don't understand i would assume that would be faster but yeah because i've actually i've actually run tests in the i remember i had written something i was working at um, back three or four, maybe four or five years ago, I was initially working on like a collaboration platform. Oh yeah, and I had named it Office G two. That was gonna be the name of it. Huh. And one of the first things that I was gonna have is like allow you, to, you know, there were in contacts and tasks and you know documents and things. And the first thing I, I made it was like an importer so that you could import your contacts from you know things like Outlook and Yahoo. Yeah. Right. And so I was inserting you know like a thousand you know or or you know, 2000 or something, I think it was my test of like a, of a CSV file. And there was a significant speed difference between doing it as like a bulk insert versus a running, looping through and inserting it one by one. So would you do that in like batches of 100 or would you just tr- do one insert with everything in one go? Oh, I think at the time I just did everything in one go, but you know, that that's probably a good question. I mean, you probably wouldn't do it like a certain million rows or something <laughs> one time. You probably have to come up with some reasonable uh, number. I mean, yeah. Maybe there's like a hundred. Was I talk- uh, did I mention the um, using cron instead of loops? Was I talking to you about that last show? Uh, I don't remember you talking about that. Using cron to like just put it a batch and just like doing it. Slowly yeah, all the because time. just one. That's one thing. That's one really big lesson that that the tweet mine of codings taught me. Because in the past, if I was if I was going to do some kind of batch job, what I would do is I'd set I'd set a PHP script and I'd set a I'd set a sleep and that script may run for a couple of hours, maybe four hours or whatever. Mm-hmm. But now, and that's always caused problems. I mean, you can imagine how many problems that would cause in terms of debugging, getting under the hood. You know, what happens when you set it off and how do you look at what it's doing four hours later? But with Tweetminer, right. um, another approach. I don't know why I did it. It was just I just did it you know, by accident or whatever. Rather than doing that, what I did was... I, you accidentally set up a cron job. <laughs> no, no. I, I, <laughs> oh, crap! I set up a cron job on purpose. Actually... But rather than write a single loop, what I did was every five minutes, it pulls the cron script, and the cron script retains state, so it knows where it is in the batch process. So mm-hmm. the cron script will, will batch. Rather, rather than sort of re- leaving the script running for you know two hours and, and looping through the batch process... What the cron script will try and do is ten, maybe ten items of the batch script, and then it will sort of stop. And then the next time round, it knows where the pointer is to, you know, to the last record that it was dealing with. Okay. So each time, it's just you know the cron script runs for a fraction of a second, and it's only you know biting off small chunks of the job. Right. And it's real, real easy to debug then, real easy to see where you're at, and it's just up to cron to keep polling it. Yeah, that seems like a good job. I mean, a good idea. It's when you get these really long-running scripts, it seems like you start to, can run into problems. Yeah. And uh, you know, you, yeah, that's just like a really good electron. Take care of it. Um, well, it's like any programming. I mean, it's like it's basically breaking your programming pro- problem up into smaller chunks. You know, it's yeah. like smaller pieces of code, smaller files, smaller whatever. Always is better. 
and more scalable. Yeah, it's easier to understand. That's kind of, <laughs> this is not kind of related, but I think they're talking about like when you remember numbers, like you can only remember, usually people remember something like around seven digits. That's why phone numbers are limited to seven digits or not too much longer. They break them up into smaller amounts. Right. So like if you want to re remember a long series of numbers, you would, you would break them into sets of like, you know, five to eight or something like that. Okay. You know, people, people have different capacities of what they can remember a sequence of numbers in easily. And, um, you know, this obviously doesn't have anything to do with what works or doesn't work in terms of a computer running efficiently, but in terms of what we can understand looking at code, you know, when they say, well, don't have, you know, a, a function that has, you know, that's more than a screen long, or I've even heard people say like seven lines, you know, method is more than seven lines. Yeah, or, I've heard that. And I, sure that the other day i'm like wow that is tight <laughs> i mean i certainly don't always obey that i mean i try not to have super long functions longer than like a screen that's that gets really long but um yeah i think for, our, for as humans our ability to understand and, and a process we you know, if you have it at one level it just is a sequence of too many individual pieces it's just too, yeah you can't get it all in your head um i know that's that's yeah, so that makes sense. So, well, anyway, that's the tradition that works. Um, you know, a um, so I don't know. I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna do some experimenting with InnoDB and um, ISAM with this new project a little later on. I, I find that really interesting, to, and you know, to see when um, how much difference it'll make in certain scenarios. But if you have one um, table or you have any tables that are getting lots of updates, it would probably make more sense to make those InnoDB versus yeah. my ISAM and vice versa. And probably pretty easy to test those. Um, another another article I read uh, was by I think this guy's name is like Brett Taylor. He he was one of the co-founders of FriendFeed, and yeah. the article was called "How FriendFeed Uses MySQL to Store Schemaless Data." Now I read this like a week ago, so I might get some of the details. I might not be able to get them quite accurate, but essentially what they would do because they had they had a couple problems. Like whenever they would change a schema. They would need to change the schema because they're adding features or whatever. Yeah. It would create a lot of problems because they'd have to change all this indexing on their end, and it was just huge, really scary. Because <laughs> they said really scary index changes would take 12 hours to get done, or you know, or something. And so what they ended up doing is say making one table um, hold the data, and each row would be just a uh, would have like an ID or something, and then uh, like a you know, like a binary or, or text blob, right. and that would be like JSON, right? Okay. Which is JSON, which would be like, which would describe, which would be some uh, record, which, you know, for people who know what JSON is, you know, like XML or something, you know, but they yeah. get JSON. And then they have other tables, like another table, which would just, uh, another table, which would just serve as like an index. So rather than putting index on that table, this other table would just, all the only things that would have would its own ID and then like, an actual uh, column would be just an index of that other table, right? So they would have these other tables that were just index tables. That's all they were. And it really um, simplified and I guess it sort of normalized their, uh, of their, their, their sort of uh, spikes, their database, um, the amount of, uh, the amount of um, processing power it was using. They, didn't they no longer had these big spikes. It would just stay nice and smooth. Okay, and but say, was... say for example, they wanted to count how many users they had. Mm -hmm. How would they do that? Count how many users they have. Yeah, I don't. I you know, I I, I off the top of my head, I don't know. I mean, I like I said I read this like a week ago, and 
I can't remember if it got too into that, but um, yeah, they, 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 I think they just use these other tables sort of like as indexes, which allow them to do the operations, like, you know, various types of counting operations you probably do on those. Tables. So does each, does it, so each table, uh, each record in the table is blob and it, it can just contain basically any data format. That's right. And they would just, yeah, any schema inside that and it would just be a JSON. And so string. when you say in, so the indexes, for example, in the, in the index, so maybe to, to count how many users they have, the index just basically points to any of those tables that are related to users, to any of the rows that are related to users. Maybe. That's right. I don't know. That's right. Huh. It's interesting. It's a different paradigm altogether. It's, uh, I wonder how, how you work with it. Well, it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, because if you're going to be lots of schema changes, if your schema is not going to be very stable because you're constantly innovating, but at the same time, you have a huge database, yeah. That that was really what the problem they're solving. You know, if they were like, if their scheme was pretty stable, then maybe that would be a big deal. But if they want to be constantly rolling out new features and, you know, hey, we need new columns here, or we need to change them indexing because of that, and this, and because we're, you know, in, and then at the same time they have like millions of users, right, with tens or hundreds of millions or billions of pieces of uh, of different types of records, of messages and likes and votes and I don't know, friends and followers or whatever the hell. Yeah, that is interesting because traditionally the way that I've done um, version control for schemas is to is to get it into subversion, um, but basically to create an update script and then so I'd have a folder where I'd have numbers you know, PHP scripts numbers one two three four five six seven eight nine, and then when I wanted to do anything new to the schema, I'd add a new one, you know, number ten, and then a new one, number eleven, and basically on the site there might be an area called you know uh, schema update or whatever. So you run you run that and it knows where it's run up to. It it, it knows that on that installation it's run up to uh, update number eight. So it then runs nine through eleven if there's three more updates. And they just do little things like alter table. And then by checking those by checking those update files in, that sort of allows you to version control schemas across different environments. But I understand that under the scenario you're talking about where you've got, you know, like a hundred million users, you know, that wouldn't work very well because you know, as you say, you know, altering a table <laughs> for a you know for a really huge record would take hours and hours and hours to complete. Yeah, and re-indexing stuff. And yeah, yeah. This every time I was really scary re-indexing, and um, it was. Uh, I thought that was really kind of interesting. It kind of reminded me, you know, because that was actually Prisa what we did. So, if you had a presentation, it wasn't like a presentation records, and then you had slide records, and then you, and there was another table of like shapes because. If you considered everything that was on a slide, like an image or text box or whatever, a shape, and you have like a shapes table. Initially, I did that out of the gate just because that's default way I thought about data. And then we realized, wait a minute, we're loading this whole thing up on the client side, the entire presentation, and we're updating the whole thing in one go. Why would we constantly go and update and delete slides and shapes? It just seems stupid because nothing else needs to relate to these things other than the presentation itself. So we just stored the whole presentation itself as JSON in one, uh, and we, we, there was a presentations um, table, and there was like three columns, like an ID, you know, like a title, maybe a, a date, like a, you know, like a created or updated timestamps, and then just the content. Was all well, that JSON. makes a lot of sense because it's encapsulated. It's its own encapsulated document. Yeah, so, so it made complete yeah. sense of what we were doing, and that's yeah. when I, I started using JSON. That was early days of JSON before people were really talking about it because... 
back when we first started working on it, I mean, it was right when, right in before um, Ajax, the term Ajax was even was even coined by with a guy, uh, his name, I can't remember, James, Jesse James, whatever, the guy from Adaptive Path. You know oh. what I'm talking about? No, but I think that that's good yeah. that you're doing that. Nice. Yeah, so... Yeah, so in, in, but back then, it was the first thing you did was XML. Like everything was like Ajax sending X. First, you start getting yeah. text. You're like, oh, this is crap, right? Constant parsing text, and you have like yeah. separators. And once you get to hierarchical data, you're like, oh, this is a nightmare. And then it's like, well, we should use XML. But um, I just remember walking the XML DOM in either PHP or JavaScript was painful. Yeah. It was very painful. And I can't remember. I think PHP was pretty painful, and in JavaScript, it was extremely painful. Yeah. It's so easy to screw up, it was so easy for things not to work. And then um, I, we started experimenting. I said, let's try JSON. And Guyon was a little hesitant. I mean, Guyon is, comes from the world of, uh, he does a lot of XML, a lot of, um, you know, .NET stuff. And so he's very comfortable with that. And he's like, he thought it was just a more standard way of doing things. And I, I convinced him, you know, we, let's, let's try this JSON thing. And it was just like, all I have to do is run eval, right? Once yeah. it runs in the client, eval, boom. You got a, a, a JSON object. There's no parsing. There's nothing to screw up. You don't even have to do that anymore. Yeah, you just well. You just you just assign it. You assign it to text to a variable. Then it's just a string, and it comes through on uh, on uh, the XHR object. It just comes through as a response text. And then it's just a string. You can't just assign it to. You have to say eval the string. Oh, okay. You know what? That functionality is hidden hidden um, through, jQuery, through jQuery. So I don't know uh, the that part of it. Like that's that's one part. One good thing about you knowing the nuts and bolts. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's um, yeah. Well, that's, yeah. When you get but hold down on a it. second. I mean, when I when I write my JavaScript stuff, you know, even TweetMiner, everything is just everything is just JSON variables, and I just literally just you know call invoke the objects directly from those JSON variables. So, you know, I'll, I'll create a function as part of the variable. You know, you, do you know what I'm talking about? Well, a JSON, but you have to turn, you have to transform it into an actual string of characters into a, a JSON, like a, like a literal, right? To a, to a, to an object, uh, to, to an object, you know, JavaScript object. I don't do that. Right? I don't do that before I start using the actual functionality of it. I just write out the JSON. In the JSON, I have, uh, you know, one of the elements of JSON may be um, a function. So I'll... I'll on the left, on the left-hand side, I'll give it its name, and then on the right-hand side of the colon, I'll just say function, and then th that will contain the code. And then I just, to initiate it, I just say, bar blah 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 equals my JSON. Yeah, but string. that's. And then I can start using the functions, so I don't have to do any eval. I think you have to. I th I, I, maybe I don't understand what you're talking about, but I don't because then it's a string, like because you know, it's just a string of text. You know, a string of text, the J JavaScript does not know that a string of text is necessarily, you know, JavaScript. Well, it's not it's a string text. because I'm just, I'm just, uh, it, it's the opening and closing brackets of the JSON format directly. It's not in string quotes or anything. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, no, you can do that. Sure. I mean, I do that. But yeah, absolutely. But, but when it's coming from the server. Right. You're either sending XML or you're sending text in the XHR component. Has two call has a callback and says response text and response XML I think or something. So why does and, what I do work then? Because I'm just it's directly the object itself, is it? I think you're talking about the object itself. I don't think you're talking about a string that would be coming right. From okay, yeah, yeah. I I think it has to be it. But um, so uh, anyway, I I could totally see what they were doing um at FriendFeed with 
just sticking and then using um and then using other tables purely for indexes. I thought that was a really clever way around it. But it's just kind of interesting. You remember Cassandra, the whole the Cassandra distributed database. Yeah. Some friend feed to start with. So we have Amazon and friend and um you know with uh, what was there Dynamo and uh, Google's Big Table and friend feeds Cassandra and you know they all these huge sites have to come up with once they get to a certain scale they have to come up with clever ways of of extending these technologies because the you know they just run into problems that people don't normally have because they've you know and uh, it's just interesting what friend feed went to do I mean because there's all these different things you can do with sharding or this or that or using but the friend feed approach was kind of interesting did you see that one of the dbs i can't remember which one um it may be i don't think it was couch one of them just basically the company that's behind it just got uh x million investment i don't know which one you're talking about um what is it db no sql mongo yeah i think that may have been that yeah was that mongo db or something that's another one of these distributed databases right yeah. There's like 10 of them. There's Tokyo Cabinet and Redis and Couch and Cassandra. and I don't mean, I, I lose track of them. There's so many of them. Like there was, there was that NoSQL conference or something was recent, held recently, and I think they were showing a list of, list of speakers, and they were talking about all these different databases that somehow I hadn't even heard of. Like they just keep popping out of the woodwork. Which is fine because you know each one tried. It's like different hypothesis. Well, it's just iterations towards where it's actually going. I guess, I guess with those styles, style of DBs, we're sort of back to the days where we were with the browsers when Mosaic first came out. You know, and everyone's trying different things and trying to get the right version, and we're doing continual iterations to get to the the right thing. Yeah, and like people will coalesce around certain solutions that there might end up being like two or three big winners. You know that everyone sort of starts to gravitating towards because and 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 they might work for different. They, they'll serve. They'll, they'll each have their own strengths and weaknesses. So some people will want one versus the other because they have a different set of problems or they integrate with a different set of tools better. You know, like a Java crowd might like one, and the Python or Perl or Ruby crowd might like another. You know, because they have much better bindings for their languages or something. But you're right. It'll just like you know these JavaScript libraries. You know, there's there was a ton of these like JavaScript libraries, and I think it's sort of. They're whittling down to like a handful. Yep, it's yeah. it's MongoDB that got uh, the, the parent company got three point five million dollars investment. Right. So, you know, with that kind of commercialization, um, funds, we could see something interesting. I mean, I guess they're probably going to go down the MySQL type of route of commercialization. Well, that's a proven way of doing it, I guess. You know, I mean, that that, that can work. I. It's interesting. I, I I'd love to have a time to. I have some time to play with um, these distributed databases. I don't really have a use for them right now, but they're pretty cool. Do you know how the the MySQL works? They, you know, the way that it's sort of open source. Um, Even though it's open source, it's not like people can come along and join the MySQL building effort, and and their code gets directly back into MySQL. I think the way that it works is that MySQL opened the code. People can play around with it and you know, compile their code into it, and then they submit their code to MySQL, who then recode it so that they have the proprietary ownership of it. So they'll take they'll take the ideas and the structure, but they'll recode. Right. And then fold it back into their their. They have their, a much tighter database. control over it. Yeah. So they keep very very tight proprietary control, but it's also open source. 
Yeah, that's fair enough, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I imagine the bigger projects, the projects that be, are used by, that are more established, are probably going to have tighter, end up having tighter controls over them. Um, especially if it's sort of sponsored by a company. You know, cause they have more on the line, they have more sort of liability, or might feel more liability, as opposed to something that's sort of like, still kind of experimental, and it's just a, you know, bunch of random people working on something that don't business is running on necessarily people may use it then but yeah you get these big ones like uh like mysql or whatever yeah yeah plus mysql has been doing this this open source thing for years so so it's like things things probably got opened up more in the recent years than it was initially did you see that recent well when i say recent maybe two it was two weeks old or three weeks old and it was a guy talking about how long it takes for tech companies to reach profitability you know to make the, the the big success and what are they saying? Uh, well, you know, stories like Google are incredibly rare, and you know, Oracle, for example. Oh, right, right, right. It was like the, it was like the road to fifty million or something. Yeah. And like, like how long it takes to get to fifty million? It was like ten or twelve years. I don't remember what the number was. A long time. Yeah, and and Oracle's sort of twenty years, and uh, you know, Google Google's the, the 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 very rare one. Yeah. See, that's another one. These, these, you know, they always talk about like the myth, the mythologies um, of uh, of you know, startups, like, you know, you're going to start up and you're going to get VC funding after, like, you're going to do a business plan and you're going to write up and you're going to get a bunch of these VCs and you're going to get funded and then you're going to, like, make a ton of money like a year or two and you're done. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, or like, you just, you build it in a few weekends and, you know, and you just, and it's just not true. And even the ones that, that were built rather quickly, there was still a lot longer time of suffering and pain and confusion and uncertainty, <laughs> you know, before anything happened. And, even things like Twitter, like it's like it was around for a while before it started to take off. It had this low, flat uptake, yeah. and then it take off at a certain point. But it was like a year into it or something. Well, the best the best is if you look at the chart of YouTube, basically mm-hmm. the growth chart. So it first the first two years it was very very long and slow, and then all of a sudden it just really caught on, and it's like a cliff. You know, it's like a uh, like a vertical cliff face going up from something like I don't know. 50,000 uniques or 100,000 uniques to like 10 million uniques or something overnight. Yeah, and I, I bet your Facebook was similar, right? I mean, it was at Harvard, right? It was just like a app, that they, you know, it was like a hot or not at Harvard or something. Yeah. And it was evolved and it was around. And, and that's why, you know, you, so, these, so these myths, you know, get perpetuated by the media largely because they're, it's more fun to tell these stories, you know, like, hey, you know, someone got off the plane in LA and they became a movie star and two days later, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, and it's the equivalent of that in the tech world, you know, and, you know, and it's not that that may not happen on rare, rare occasions. You always have your outlier, but that's not the common experience, even for the people who have become successful. They've usually worked for years and years and years, and then they end up having success. And the story just is too long and tedious to tell the whole thing, you know, so people want to focus just on like the exciting right when it happened. And, but it sort of does a disservice because, it makes people think it's easier than it is. And so when things don't take off immediately, they get just discouraged, right? Yeah. So you're like talking about tweet money, you're like, oh, I only got 28 users. So I'm like, holy crap, that's awesome, right? <laughs> I mean, that's fantastic. I can't believe you went from six to nine to 28. I mean, that's great. I mean, I was expecting you to tell me you had like 12 or 11. Well, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's fine. You're good. You keep your expectations down. You're not getting excited. You got to stay, you got to sort of stay. You don't want to be like, getting all crazy with optimism to the point that if it 
if it slows down or it doesn't grow at a level you were expecting that you just give up. Because that's the big risk of, of the myths for being perpetuated is that you think, okay, I got the side project and it's just going to go hockey stick in like two months. So if it doesn't, and then you give up and then you got no chance, but it turns it out, it might, it might turn out that it might take 18 months and it does go hockey stick, but it has a nice growth, but you got to be willing to stick with it. Well, what I'm wondering is a couple of things. First of all, remember that, that podcast we were talking about where I said that the business model was all wrong because it was only it had 1.6% uh, take up that mm -hmm. I would need too many users, so I'm going to have to raise the prices. So now, you know, I made this one change and I put some sales sales pitch on that one page. And mm -hmm. just, just to basically allay, fee, allay people's fears about cancelling and just sort of tell them thanks for using TweetMiner. And all of a sudden, it's up to 2.1%. So now I'm thinking, well, hold on a second. Maybe I could do some other little tweaks and, you know, bring it up to the, you know, the 5% that it needs for me to just right. leave the prices the way they are. Yeah, well, I, I think... Um... I think, uh, you know, you probably should just do a lot of A-B testing because, yeah. you know, there are probably plenty of other things that will either give people a better understanding what the product is when they first look at the page or allay their fears or whatever. I mean, there's probably a lot of things that can increase that because, you know, just because you tried something, even if you thought about it for a minute, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best, the, the, it's going to have the highest conversion rate. Yeah. You know? And you want you want people to get there and have as clear of an idea of what the product is and what the benefits are, and to lay their fears that it's not some kind of that they you know they're going to get continually. Well, I think the scary charged. thing so, is is that basically when you when you click the sign up button, it takes you off to PayPal, and PayPal says twenty four monthly installments. Right? right. So you're thinking, oh my god, I'm locked into this for two years, you know, whereas it you know you should sort of say to the user, well, look, you can you can get out of this. You know, you only need to pay one month if you want. Why does it do that? It's just what PayPal says. I mean, that's their journey. But why don't, why don't, you, why don't you integrate and, and, and go through the API instead of going after PayPal? Well, because that would require PayPal Pro. Which costs what? Um, yeah, it, co it, costs mo it costs money, but you, you still have to... Get their PayPal username, and password, or whatever. I mean, yeah, but how much does it cost? I don't know. I don't know. Twenty bucks a month? Ten bucks? A I month? don't think so. No, I think it's more like a hundred plus. A hundred dollars a month? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean that in itself, right there, might be scaring a ton of people off. Well, but that's why I said I've, and one, I've, one, I've, if this... you scare one, if it doesn't scare one person off, it might pay for itself. Yeah, but. Well, no, it wouldn't because, you know, I only get Oh, I mean, five, $10 a month or whatever and 10 people. But I, I don't know. I'd look carefully at that. Well, no, that's... I only get five bucks a month per person. So what, so what I've done is rather than that, I've got this note that says, you know, it just basically says, look, you can, you can cancel. And by the way, when you get to PayPal, they say they're going to charge 24 installments. But what they actually mean is they'll charge for 24 months if you don't cancel. If you do cancel, it will instantly stop, stop right. being charged. So, and as I said, since I put that there, you know, it helps. No, it helps. It's it's, yeah. it's a, that's that's better than, um, than nothing. But it, at some point, you probably want to not go through PayPal, not have people go off to PayPal and stuff. That's that's kind of you know less smooth. So it's like I mean, I had I had read a number of articles about that, and they're talking about streamlining the sign up and registration process. So as streamlined as you can get it, as simple as you can get it, the better. It's like because there's always just a drop off point every single time there's a decision to like either you know, 
put in your email or create a username password or pull out your credit card. Each one of those is this huge drop off right at that point. Yeah. And so as painless as you can make each one and at any point it's you do it as late as possible. And yeah. when you do do it, you ask for as little information as possible and you show as many of the benefits at that point that they're either aware or being reminded of what they're getting to do that. Well, I would have so, thought that the, the way it's doing it at the moment is as painless as possible because most people already have a PayPal account. So rather than have a form telling them to enter credit card information, you pass them to PayPal, they just type in a username password, which they've already got, click a button, and then, you know, they're, they're upgraded. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not really a big PayPal user. I have okay. a PayPal account. But if you ask me for a PayPal account, that means I'd have to go in and start searching for what my password and username are because I don't remember them. Right. Okay. So I'd much rather just do a credit card. Yeah. You know, so. That's interesting. For me personally, I mean, you know, and, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm an outlier, but I don't really. I'd prefer just do credit card. It's just probably. I don't want to give. I, don't, I wouldn't want to give a site like TweetMiner my credit card details. Hmm. <laughs> and I'm, yeah, you know, guess, I'm the I, owner I of it. What saying. What you're saying. <laughs> I'm yeah. the owner of it. I'd much rather, I'd much rather give PayPal my credit card details, who I already know. You know, they're a really, really big organization, and then Tweetminer are getting money from them, just from username, password, so they don't know any of my information. Right. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Huh. Interesting. Is that the same for local bacon? Well, you know, I guess local bacon does, seems more of an important product than something like Tweetminer. Right, 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 right. You know, speaking of like typical user behavior, there's an article I read and it's called Your Users Are Not Random Variables. Okay. And one thing it was kind of, if I can remember, essentially you're talking about how, um, you know, like what, like how, I, when you when you take, when you normal in statistics, when you're saying, okay, you're trying to get a, an understanding of like how some variable behaves. And so what is your minimum sample size to have some reasonable level of confidence that whatever the standard deviation and mean or whatever statistics you're trying to glean from about the standard, the, the random variable are, are true. Right. You know? So it's like if you have 10, a sample size of 10, that's probably not going to be very good. A hundred's a lot better. A thousand's a lot better, you yeah. know? And, and it, it just it keeps increasing the probability or the chance that you're not the sample is not um, the same, not representative of the population. So um, we were talking about, I think they were, just, like, they were at some, uh, in some college, I guess they were talking about how this one guy, the professor has them do like, a, they had some software and they got a bunch of, they would have, the students would have to bring in you know, uh, users to test the product and, and, and find out what they understood or didn't understand or what. And it was funny because after like the 10th or 11th one, it was obvious that everybody was finding the same thing out. So in other words, humans are not random variables because people tend to behave this a similar way. So you right. go out and, you know, 10, 20 people are all telling you, yeah, this, this is confusing. It's not like you need a hundred people to tell you that, you know, no, no, exactly. Like, Usually after 10 or 11 of these two-hour sessions, that they would go to the professor and their, the group would say, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're not – every additional person is not really giving us information. He's like, yeah, that's pretty much <laughs> the way it is. Okay. So it's not so much – it's not so much about, you know, will they buy something. It's just about how they find journeys, how they experience Yeah, what journeys. the reaction are to things if they find things confusing or ugly or – whatever intimidating or whatever it is you know i mean people 
people are more similar than they are different, I guess. And so you don't have to have as as large of sample sizes in order to get an understanding of of how people are probably going to react to things. Yeah. So, and uh, they were. I think what they were talking about is like it was kind of interesting. It was like when we look at say like um a a button or a tab that has just text versus say an icon and text that the icon and the text um is the best because one thing's with the eye because if you a lot of times if you don't understand what the icon is then you know just by looking at a, a, an image you're kind of like well i don't i don't i don't really know what this is but what about tooltips but, tool but te one thing is text is a very good part of your brain so it, it has takes more processing for your brain right to view that whereas if you see something out of the corner of your eye an icon of some kind and it's a plus or an x and you kind of know what it is and you just can do it so people are it's quicker to understand it's easier to understand interface yeah and uh, i thought that was kind of interesting about the the icon and the text combination i mean once again with with tweet minor i've just used icons and then tooltips so you know you hover over them and to see what they do yeah, because you made this really, really compact interface because you have like a really tiny screen. Yeah, <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> you got a bigger screen now. I've got a bigger screen now. Yeah, but I don't want to change it. I like it being compact. But do other people like it? Have you tested it? Well, I'm I'm doing a new um a new screen because that's what the main request is is to do mm -hmm. this multi multi column screen. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of just the icons only a lot of times because I because I, I get in and then it's like I have to, it's like a big mystery like what the hell this stuff does. Well, you know? I suppose if there was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them, I may do that. But it's not like it's not like a desktop application where. I mean, how many different buttons are there on the main screen? Not very many. I don't know, like, uh, no less than that, like two. <laughs> there are two buttons. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really it's it's very very yeah. Basic. And so, mouse is over and it does tooltips. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. But I don't know. I mean, it, it, it just in general, though, it sounds like you probably could benefit from the, some for some uh, A/B testing. Yeah. I mean, how would you set, how would you set up A/B testing? Like, what well, would you do? Is it? You know, I haven't done it myself, to be honest. But I've I've been reading about it over the last few months, and I keep seeing articles pop up. And you know, I think Google Analytics or something or Google Optimizer or whatever they have some stuff. I can't. I get confused with all their products. They have some stuff for A/B testing. And they have stuff for optimizing AdSense. They have a bunch of these things, so that's why I'm confused at which one is which. But I know they have product. And there's something mix mix panel or something. Does it? I you just look up A/B testing tools on the web, and you'll find like a million of them. There's a lot of pretty. Well, I did post up a link recently just that says you know the top 15 A/B testing tools. Yeah, so. I saw that too. Yeah, I saw that. That was on uh, Hacker News. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I actually I actually saved that link because I wanna I'm gonna look into that at some point. I mean, I I think it's just such a you know you always just want to go off real data as opposed to what your just high, you know speculation is. I guess what I meant is I know that you can use these tools. So what these tools do is they you know you ping a page or whatever. Um, but I'm just wondering like how you work it into your you know because on and the developers side we've got to do something. We've got to make up you know make page A display or page B display, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we sort of go about doing that? We just we just do a fork in the code and then say 50% of the time go this way, 50% of the time go the other way. Yeah. I mean, that's the easiest way to do it. But I think some of these tools will, like these, 
they'll integrate and they'll they'll track a lot more information. Like right. I think mix mix panel tracks a lot of information about where people click and whether you know where their mouse is going and you know might give some more information about it. Um, kind of like a heat map of your yeah. actual pages. Um, Does that work with Ajax? Yeah, like I said, I, I, you know, I like I, I looked into this like four months ago. I read an article or two by him, so I don't really know off the top of my head. I, that, but if I once once I get to the point where I'm going to start doing some A/B testing, I'm definitely going to look into mix. I think it's called Mix Panel. The, the reason I know about them is they've written a number of articles that popped up on um, Hacker News at times, and they write usually write pretty interesting stuff. So um, that's a good benefit for writing Hacker News, right? If if you're if that it does all your market, you know, all you got to do is write some good articles from there and you get traffic from that crowd well that's interesting that you should say that because once again when i launched TweetMiner, i wrote a couple of articles that got to the front page and the top of hacker news both of them and right. i got huge huge traffic to the articles but not even one click through to TweetMiner itself really yeah that's i got like 10 to fifteen thousand uniques but no one went to TweetMiner. i wonder why because I think that um, you know they're interested in the story, they're interested in the story, but they're not really you know specifically interested in the product, and that they just don't want to go through. I mean, why should they? Yeah, no, that's probably true. It's the people that are interested in the process of building software or writing code or building startups. They're not interested in you know unless unless the product itself is involved in that. Yeah, process. exactly. So so the product. So for example, and this is what I'm trying to say with balsamic mockups. That's, there's no way that would have happened, you know, because Balsamic is just a much more generic tool, you know. Right. Like all, all of those developers, well, you know, no, I will literally say all of those developers could have a use for Balsamic mockups. Right. Right. But none of them had a use for TweetMiner. So right. that's the difference right. in market sizing there. Yeah, well, that's the whole thing. I guess that's the big thing about markets. Is it depends what your demographic is or whatever it is. A different group matter what is your group then it's really specific it's really specific it's people who you know see twitter as a great way to market themselves and um you know what basically to build up a they want to build up a personal brand or they want to build up um some kind of you know market their company and it's the people who've taken it on board and they're trying to build their following by posting interesting content because they realize that's a great strategy. And they've found out that it's a pain in the butt to go and search out all of the articles to format them and post them into Twitter. And, um, you know, they've been thinking, oh, I wish there was a tool where I could just like, you know, get get these articles really easily on um, through the net via RSS and then right. click a button and get them into Twitter. <laughs> so it's it's very, very niche. <laughs> To right. say the well, least. But again, I mean, you know, it's probably a lot bigger. That might be a bigger market than programmers, hackers, startup people. That's actually a fairly small market. Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, that's an interesting point. I mean, there are there certainly are a lot of people who, you know, are into Twitter, but I don't know. I don't know how to define the market even. Yeah, well, it's no point. No, I guess probably not a point. Just don't worry about it. Just, you know, just let people come organically and you'll find out more about them. You know. So, all right, uh, that's a wrap. We're out. <laughs>